You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. On today's episode, I'm again excited to bring uh, bring you a conversation with Dr. Ray Alisaskas, a research scientist with Environment and Climate Change Canada out of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Uh, Ray is adjunct professor with the uh, Department of Biology at the University of Saskatchewan. And Ray spoke with us on the previous episode about uh, some of the work that he's been involved uh, been involved with on long-term studies of snow geese and Ross's geese in the in the central Arctic. We are back with Ray again to talk a little more in depth about uh, the just what they have to deal with on a daily basis uh, in those remote locations. We also want to talk with them uh, about some of the data they collect and how it's used to to estimate annual productivity for these species. So, Ray, welcome back to the show. How are you, Mike? Doing well, and we want to jump right in here uh, on the topic. And the, in the previous episode, we uh, we did talk about just how far north these study sites are, and the remoteness of those sites brings with them certain challenges. And so, talk about a typical day in the field. I've never been to any of these colonies. That is one of the things that I would like to find a way to. Uh, to do um, help somehow, uh, and just so I could see that that system, uh, what's it what's it like up there? Well, I mean, it's it's uh, you know like most places that are haven't been developed uh, beyond recognition. It's it's a uh, it's a it's a beautiful place. I mean, uh, uh, when we arrive, it's still winter. Um, you know, it's snow covered and cold. You know, minus you know it's below uh, can be about. Well, it's definitely below zero, hour zero Celsius, freezing, um, windy. Uh, but when we arrive, there's pretty well 24 hours of sunlight. And then when spring kicks in, things really take off. Melt happens. Birds are arriving. And, uh, yeah, a lot of activity, a lot of life uh, comes flooding back with the arrival of all the migrants and the caribou moving through and, and so on. Um, so, yeah. It's, sounds like, it sounds like a wonderful place. Yeah, it's it's uh, you know uh, there aren't well there are trees but they're only two or three inches tall, <laughs> but so you can see a long ways uh, and uh, you know although uh, you know some days are beautiful the weather can turn uh, in in a jiffy and uh, go from you know uh, from one hour being sunny to fog coming in with high wind and uh, you know it compromise your ability to find out where you are or where you've ended up so. So you always have to keep your eye in the sky and 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 that sort of thing. And not only that, uh, there's um, besides the the wildlife that we're we're focusing on, uh, there's things like uh, grizzly bears, barren ground grizzlies, and so you need to be prepared to deal with any encounters like that with um, bear bangers, bear spray, 
uh, firearms, um, that kind of thing. Um, you know, other other activities involve walking on the ice locally, like Carrick Lake. Our camp is on an, a large island in the middle of Carrick Lake, and the reason it was there to you know to deter bears from coming on there. Um, but you know, we have to travel over water every day to uh, to uh, get to you know the outlying parts of the colony. Uh, and the colony is probably 20 kilometers, 12 miles or so across, north to south, east to west. That's changing, but it's gotten as big as that. So, you know, that's a lot of ground to cover. And all of these, well, I shouldn't say all of them, most of these nesting colonies are north of the Arctic Circle. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, 90% of the mid-continent population of snow geese nests north of the uh, Arctic Circle, um, or certainly north of 60 degrees latitude, and, and but yeah, there's the three main regions are, are the Central Arctic, Queen Maud Gulf, Southampton Island, and uh, the the Great Plain of the Kugjuak, which is on the west side of Baffin Island. We talked about a big grassy plain there, studded with 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 wetlands and water. Uh, and but there are other birds uh, that nest farther to the south. Uh, probably form about 10% of the mid-continent population. And that's based on uh, work's been done by uh, by photo surveys where to get an idea of how many birds are nesting in each region. Now, that doesn't capture all the birds. We don't know where all the colonies are, but of the ones we do know about, we know that much. So, And so tell me, tell me if I have this right. When you're north of the Arctic Circle, that's sort of the – that's the point. When you, once you get north of that, you have – uh, you're able to see the sun or you get a full 24 hours of daylight in the middle of the summer, right? Or at the summer solstice. Is that right? The sun doesn't set, uh, okay. you know, you watch it come down and then it'll, it'll never fully set. You know, like for example, on the longest day of the year, June 21st, it'll, it'll, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you get used to it when you want to sleep, but, uh, um, but yeah, 24 hours of, of sunlight. So what's a typical day for a researcher? Well, and so for, also, how many people are at, uh, how many researchers are at some of these colonies? And what's a typical day for those folks? Oh, you know, anywhere from 6 to to 12 probably. Um, you know, we, again, you know, being focused on, on, uh, on the snow and the Roskies, what we typically, well, there's two kinds of activities. One is as we talked about in the earlier uh, episode, um, there's nesting studies, which lets us get at the productivity and also banding work, which, you know, we mark birds and release them. So we get some information about survival, but we also get some information about productivity during the banding activities as well. So the nesting studies occur obviously during nesting. So at Carrick Lake, that's from the end of May till uh, middle of July, let's say early July. Uh, and so what we do there is we, we, for the colony each year, I get in a helicopter and I fly around the perimeter and map out that perimeter of the colony. And it's, you know, that'll cover about probably 300 square kilometers of the Earth's surface. Now that's got water and land in there. Obviously geese don't nest on the water, but the land portion within that is, is probably about 200 kilometers, square kilometers uh, that you've got, you know, up to a million geese nesting on. So once we know the extent of the colony each year, we, we, we have a permanent grid system every kilometer. We have a 30-meter radius plot, which we go to, and we travel in pairs. Again, this is for safety reasons. Uh, you know, something happens, you break through the ice, and you're alone. Things can get, you know, turn south on you pretty quick. 
so yeah, you know, working in pairs is a big safety thing. Uh, you know, same as deterrence with bears or, or, or whatever. Um, that's the way to go. So people go in pairs to these different uh, nest plots that are a kilometer apart in a grid fashion within that area that we've mapped out. And we try to visit all those plots during nesting. And so once we get to a plot, it's a 30 meter radius. Uh, we, we pretty well, there's a tape and we, we map and measure all the nests that are there. We measure the eggs because with that many birds, uh, as you approach the nest, the, the birds move away from the nest. And so we can't tell which bird belongs to which nest. You got to understand that there could be a hundred nests on one of these plots. Uh, and so we, but we know we can tell Ross and snow geese from the egg measurements. So for each nest, we've got these egg measurements that we can then go ahead and, and ID later on. Um, and then we under, we count the number of eggs. So we get an idea of how, how what the clutch size was for any year, how that varies by year. Uh, and then these all of these plots are revisited after the birds hatch, so we get nest success. So we know if you know if the bird nested, what's the probability that it hatched at least one egg? So those things really figure this you know these measures of what's called fecundity fi- figure really into into how many goslings are going to be produced uh, later on. So that's kind of a typical day with the snow and Roskies. Now I also mentioned we do other things like measure vegetation at each of these plots from year to year to try and understand the dynamics of that and what the effects uh, of the geese are on the vegetation. And, and after the geese, you know, stop using area is a recovery of the vegetation and, and those kinds of things. I mentioned we have a long-term Arctic mark recapture study on Arctic fox and how the, their biology is affected by the local uh, numbers of geese. Uh, we monitor lemming numbers, um, and, you know, uh, we monitor other species of birds on the area on these plots. Um, we've got some side studies, uh, you know, uh, convenience is that we're, we're there anyway studying these geese, and when things get a bit slower after hatch uh, in July by the geese, uh, there's a good population of king eiders nesting there, and we started studying those in 1995. Uh, just because there were some conservation concerns about them, declines in population size uh, continentally, uh, and also very little known about their uh, their biology. So that's kind of a, a thumbnail sketch of the kind of things we do during the, the nesting studies. I'm tempted to ask you questions about what you found in all those other studies, but I'm going to have to resist the urge to do that. But what you are doing, Ray, perhaps unbeknownst to you, is you're giving me a whole list of things to have you back on the show for. So thanks for that. Yeah, well, whenever you ask a question, you get an answer that raises 20 more questions, it seems. So <laughs> that is in true. In science and, and in uh, journalism, I guess. One of the things that I just want to point out for our, our listeners, I think most people that uh, have an understanding of, of waterfowl will realize this, but snow geese, Ross geese, these, these Arctic nesting geese, like Canada geese that many people across the lower 48 or lower portion of North America are familiar with, these nests are not concealed. They're not hidden in the grass the way ducks, uh, the way uh, ground nesting ducks or overwater nesting ducks do. These are their colonial nesters. Their nests are fully exposed. You can see them from a great distance away. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, especially when there's, you know, hundreds per, per an area the size of a football field, for example, or even more. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the the place is just covered in 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 in, in geese, white geese, uh, you know, light geese, snow Ross geese. We also have blue faced snow geese there as well. The blues are eagle heads. Uh, so, but uh, yeah, you look any direction when you're in the middle of that colony, there's just birds everywhere. 
You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Ray, you've mentioned productivity a couple of times already. The data that you collect feeds into annual estimates of that and just want to uh, define that, if you will. When, we, when we're talking about productivity, we're talking about the annual production of young uh, young geese in this case. That That's a simple, fair way to characterize that? Yeah, that's yeah. I think so. And, you know, a good index of that is just the number of goslings uh, that are alive per number of adults that are alive, you know. So, um, you know, it's like a fertility rate, uh, same in human populations. You know, how many kids does this um, um, uh, woman have over her lifetime? Or in uh, in the case of uh, punctuated breeders like, like geese, um, you know, and during a, a nesting season. So that's a convenient way. And uh, that kind of leads us to the banding work, even though the banding studies are, are designed to mark birds and, uh, uh, and, and just let them go and to learn other things. You also get productivity information during the banding. So, you know, obviously the activity day to day would be that uh, you, you fly around in a helicopter with your banding crew and the pilot, of course, <laughs> And uh, you, you try and find reasonably sized uh, groups of birds. You don't want them too large because you want to minimize the amount of time that you're handling them. And uh, basically, once you, you, you spot a, a, a flock, you know, maybe two or 300 birds, uh, some of these flocks are thousands, but you want to avoid catching those. Um, and then these productive flocks will have adults and that year's number of or goslings that are associated with those adults or the moms and the dads uh, with their kids uh, because they stick together. And then as a helicopter approaches, they bunch up, think the, the aircraft lands, uh, the banding crew gets out, pilot takes off, banding crew quickly sets up a corral-type net, funnel-type net, um, you know, with two wings, for example. And uh, they back away, and then, uh, you know, the helicopter will just herd those birds gently, slowly into the uh, corral net, and it's closed off. And then you just process the birds. You record the age, the sex. You have to evert the cloaca to get the see if there's a penis or a or a, a, a or it's not. A, it's just a a black spot um, present on on the female geese and a clear penis on on the males. And so you have to pop those and find out the sex of the adults and the young, and you can do it with goslings as well. And we've got the age structure as well, and then we record all out, record the band number, and let them go. Uh, and you have to, well, you can't let them go immediately. You have to let them go together. So they have to be held, the adults and the young, if there's young in, in the group, uh, and they're let off all together so that the families stay uh, cohesive. But uh, right away, if you do a count of the, the young and the adults, right away you got an index of productivity right there. So, um, you know, you could have one adult per young on that. So if you catch 200 geese and there's 200 goslings with them, that's a one-to-one ratio. Some flocks will have, uh, you know, no young if there's a non-breeding flock. Um, and so, and some will have more, but you take the, the average or some all those up during a, a year's or a season's banning operation, that will give you the age ratio at the time of banding, which is just before the birds are, 
the young birds are able to fly. So that's what we call the fledgling or banding age ratio, well, just before the birds fledge, which is the attainment of flight. And so the, there's still a possibility that if some of the birds that you're catching there are not uh, are, are still a week or a couple of weeks away from from flight, then there's a chance that, that you know adverse weather comes in, they could still succumb to those elements, right? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, they feel like goslings are, can be actually very uh, vulnerable to poor weather. By poor weather, I mean like wet weather. Uh, they don't have fully formed feathers. They're downy young, uh, and that's one of the reasons you want to avoid uh, banding, uh, even if it's misty out or foggy. Uh, certainly, if it's raining, you shouldn't band uh, because uh, it'll induce mortality. So uh, the banders avoid that kind of those kinds of conditions. And you know, some you know, typically a banding operation will will be the helicopters booked for ten days. But you might some years you know you lose half of that or even most of those days to bad weather, and that's kind of very frustrating. But you can't fight weather, so you just you just got to roll with it. Uh, but other years, you know, uh, some some years, for example, Kyle Drake, uh, I know he loves banding snow geese and Ross geese, and he's he's uh, he'll band up to uh, ten twelve thousand birds in a year. Or he has done that, and uh, without without catching excessively large flocks, just medium properly sized flocks, uh, but just lots of hard work through the day. So, so anyway, we do get these age ratios, and uh, but again, you have yeah you have to avoid certain weather conditions. What would be a you, you mentioned that if you corral a flock and there are no young birds, and then that's an index of, of obviously no productivity, uh, and so that's not what you want to see you know from a uh, from a young of the year perspective. What would be a ratio that you find and you say, wow, productivity this year was good. What are we looking at there? Uh, three to one, uh, young to adult? Well, at that time of year, one to one is even pretty good. Uh, that means, you know, like each pair of geese produce two goslings, you know. I mean, they lay more eggs than that, but between hatch, which is about uh, six weeks before the banding operations, and fledging, which is maybe a week or so after the banding operation, uh, there's this thing called, <laughs> this probability called gosling survival. And, you know, I mean, you can have the best nesting effort, but if gosling survival is zero, you're still going to end up with zero young at the time of banding. So, you know, people often uh, uh, ask me, how's the nesting effort been? Well, it can be good, but it doesn't mean you'll have lots of young. The bottom line is what's, what's uh, you know, what you're seeing at banding in terms of the number of goslings that are still alive uh, at that time, and then that that age ratio at banding is very tightly linked to what we see in the fall, certainly in Saskatchewan, like the correlation is super high, so if it's high uh, at the at banding it's going to be higher in here in Saskatchewan by September October as those birds come down and move through it's lower than it is in the Arctic because you know there's a bit of mortality uh the adults tend to not die very well or very much at all uh but, you know, there's some gosling mortality after banning and before they leave the, the Arctic, you know, on their migration. And then there's there's some during migration from the Arctic down to the, the prairies here in Canada. Well, Ray, one of the questions that uh, every year, as you've mentioned already, hunters want to know is what's the productivity like this year? Because it varies uh, dramatically from year to year and probably probably even from colony to colony. Uh, so it's obviously going to be difficult to give uh, a terribly accurate answer to this question, but I have to ask it. What what have you heard? Uh, we're recording this in early November, so uh, quite a bit of time has passed since some of the early indices of productivity were out. 
But uh, what are you? What did you see this year uh, with respect to productivity, and what do you think uh, hunters might might expect? And what have you learned on the staging ground since uh, since some of these productivity measures were developed? Okay. Well, I mean, for this year, I know uh, I, I only know for certain. Uh, you know, the, the the banding age ratios were very poor in the central Arctic. Uh, almost no young, like probably ten percent young. So for every for every nine adults, there was maybe one young. Uh, instead of uh, you know uh, nine adults per or sorry nine young for per, for each nine adults so it certainly wasn't a one to one uh, it was like a nine to one uh, in favor of adults so very poor in the central Arctic now that's not the case like uh, you you preface your question with uh, you know different colonies on Baffin I understand the 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 productivity was higher those birds tend to go through eastern Saskatchewan and Manitoba, for example, in Canada, and, and uh, tend to, you know, spend more time in the Mississippi flyway than in the central flyway. So I'm expecting that, you know, and those Baffin dirt b- birds did better than the central Arctic birds due to differences in weather and, and, and so on. So I'm expecting the Mississippi flyway will see slightly higher age ratios than, than farther west in the central flyway, where most of the... Uh, um, Central Arctic birds used to fly through, and and although more and more of these birds are heading east uh, during winter, you know, so things are always changing with these birds. So it's interesting, Ray, that you mentioned that about Baffin Island. I was in southern Manitoba uh, in early October, and we came across one flock of snow geese. You know, granted, this is one flock in one location, but uh, there were quite a few young young birds in that in that flock i we did not uh, do any kind of count but I, if i had to guess i would probably say it was it was close to um i don't know if it would have gotten to a one-to-one ratio uh probably not but uh, you know it was i just remember after having read some of your earlier emails about low productivity at some of the colonies i was surprised to see a number of juveniles in that flock so but again that's just just one observation, one flock. So. Well, that's right. Yeah, and even, well, even uh, here in in Saskatchewan, if you go far enough east, you you would have seen a high a higher age ratio. But then, in the western part of the province, where these central Arctic birds come through, um, you know, it was probably ten percent young, like nine to one. So, you know, uh, yeah, and, and then you know these birds from different regions mix. I mean, if they all do poorly, they'll be poor everywhere. <laughs> but if you have this sort of what's called heterogeneity or just, just differences in, in the age ratios from these different colonies, what you end up seeing depends on how big those relative sizes of those colonies are and how well they mix together through migration and, and so on. So, you know, it's a bit, a bit of a complicated game, but um, pretty low in the West for these mid-continent birds, probably higher in the east for these mid-continent birds. Um, so lower in the central, higher in the Mississippi, although, as I said, more and more of these birds are heading to places like uh, Arkansas for the winter where they mix up, and, and probably any of those regional differences, you know, cut it down the middle. Uh, the differences will mix in, and, you know, you get something in the middle, so probably reasonable age ratios. Any word out of Wrangell Island? Uh, I I have not talked to Vasily uh, uh for some time, and I don't know what the situation there is. You might have to get him on your show someday. That would be interesting, a native Mississippian talking to a Russian. Um, <laughs> we might have to have a translator for that. Uh, oh. Might have to have you back on, Ray, to do that. Well, I don't speak much Russian. 
No, okay. I thought you were going to say I don't speak Mississippi. <laughs> uh, that I can get by on. Yeah. That's right. You have spent some time down here. Um, okay, Ray. Well, what about what about any surveys or observations from the prairies that uh, that you might have made since uh, since some of the the banding work has occurred? Have you do you have any information from that? Either personal uh, personal anecdotes or any other formal surveys that are conducted. Uh, yeah, well, we do a, a fall age ratio as well as the birds are moving through uh, Saskatchewan. Uh, of course, a lot of the mid-continent does move through Saskatchewan. So um, I uh, I do with these age ratio counts uh, through September and October. And and um, as we discussed, uh, you know, on the west side, there's very few young uh, per adult, whereas the farther east you go, the, in, the you know that age ratio does increase, and and so there's a number of blue birds, you know, farther east. So um, anywhere you're going to see blue birds, you probably see higher higher uh, age ratios than you would uh, farther to the west. Um, that's just the general thumb. The data is still in the books, and we're just entering it. But that's the general impression I had, and and uh, and the answer is well, it depended where you were hunting or where you're looking. Mm-hmm. I have to ask you also, Ray, I I don't know that I ever have uh, inquired with you on this. Do you get out and hunt snow geese very much in Saskatchewan? Uh, yeah, not as much as I used to. Uh, I, I love snow geese. Uh, I love to watch them. I love to, to study them. Uh, I love to listen to them, uh, you know, and I love eating them. Uh, and I, that's kind of what I focus on. I And uh, there's a bunch of great recipes uh, Hank Shaw has done. I think he's done work with DU, but... Uh, I'm not trying to plug the guy, but I mean, uh, one of the important things to me about hunting is is uh, is the eating part and just the solitude and being out with your dog and and you know, no people around if that's possible. But uh, but that's just me. Other people love the camaraderie of uh, a hunt and in a group and so on. Uh, but the eating part to me is pretty important. So yeah, I like all aspects of, of snow geese and uh, yeah, they're a pretty amazing bird. Yeah, well, I'm of like mind on all those aspects of waterfowl hunting, from the from being out in the field to actually bringing the bird home, processing it, and and seeing it actually get to the table, and then enjoying it. Yeah, uh, Ray, I want to I want to thank you again for sharing your time, sharing your expertise, like we do with all of our guests on this show that are bringing good scientific scientific information to our our audience. Um, your career has been incredibly valuable for advancing our understanding of waterfowl ecology, waterfowl conservation, and the management of that resource to ensure its sustainability uh, indefinitely through time. And you know, personally, as a as, as a colleague and as a friend, I really do thank you for taking your time to to come on the show. We're uh, we we hope uh, that we will be able to get you back on the show, or maybe even get you in studio if you ever find your way back down here to Memphis. So, thank you, Ray. Any final words for the audience? Well, it's been my pleasure, uh, Mike, but uh, I just want to remind, uh, I assume most of the people listening to to these podcasts are are hunters, uh, and I would encourage any hunter that shoots a bird with a ban on it, please uh, report that ban, because that kind of information is valuable, uh, uh, more than you can imagine to understand, uh, you know, what's what's driving these bird populations, so, and uh, thanks to those that do, and thanks to those that will. Absolutely. Thank you, Ray. My pleasure. A special thanks goes out to our very distinguished guest, one of the world's foremost experts in snow goose ecology, Dr. Ray Alisaskis. 
We also thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great job that he does. And most importantly, we thank you, the listeners. We thank you for your time, for your passion, and your commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.